Hello and welcome to the Life Church Audio Podcast. We hope that you find these messages encouraging, life-giving, and ultimately get you closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Wow, it's almost Christmas. Can you tell? My wife got me this. Hopefully this doesn't distract from what I'm teaching this morning. I don't think it will. So we're continuing our series on behold. Um, so behold, to see, to see, to hear, and to understand mentally. Now, the reason why I love this word is because, I mean, part of being a teacher, I love to behold scripture. I love to be able to not just glance at something, but to behold it, to dig, to to try to extract as much as possible. Now, I, and I understand not everybody has that gifting. And you know what? That is totally okay. That's why we do this on Sundays. So that in, in, in my times of study, that we get to now together behold. Corporately. Because at the end of the day, anyone who's like, when I study, I'm studying for me. I'm studying because I want to know the Lord myself. And it's just an honor and a privilege that I am able then to share what the Lord reveals to me by beholding his word and that we can behold it together. Isn't that awesome? So beholding, it's, it's, it's more than just glancing at something. And I would never use the example of a guitar like Pastor Bish did last week. Like, who would do that over your wife? Actually, I did have a guitar once, and actually, you bought it off of me, didn't you? I love that guitar. It was a Fender Strat, American-made, not Japanese-made, no offense against the Japanese, but it was American-made. It was beautiful. Sunburst. The fret was like silk when you played it. And honestly, there's times I'd, it would sit in the case and I would just stare at it. Man, I miss that guitar. Yeah. But, <laughs> sorry, I got sidetracked on the guitar. But anyway, it's kind of a, a joke, right? But honestly, it's like beholding when you see your bride come down that aisle. You're not just glancing at her. You are beholding every inch of that woman that you're marrying walking down that aisle. So it's, there's an intensity to this. So also when, when the angel said, behold, and they brought their message, it was in the imperative voice. And you're going to hear all, a lot of this stuff as I teach. And you're going to be learning this stuff line upon line, um, precept upon precept. So the imperative voice is a command. So the angels came and said, I command you to behold. They didn't say that and just say, okay, see ya. They don't command something without giving full discourse on what we're to behold. So when the angels came and said that, they pointed to prophetic scripture as the basis for the explanation and clarification. It always goes back to scripture for clarification. 
So the Bible, we're going to we're going to get into the Christmas story. I just I'm I'm laying kind of a foundation first. We're going to get into actually where Jesus was born. And actually, I'm going to share some information of the exact day he was born. It's going to dismantle a lot of this traditional stuff. You know, when, when you, have you ever lived by the highway and you have the stream of traffic constantly, constantly going? After a while, you don't even hear it anymore. And that's happened to us scripturally with some stories that we've learned over time that we heard it so much, we just dismiss it and just think, okay, that's just the way it is. The Bible is not a history book. It's a theological book. History verifies the theology. Right? So let me give an example of that. So Jesus prophesied about the temple being destroyed. He prophesied a prophetic word, theology, eschatology. But then... Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, was there when it was destroyed and gave all the historical data of what happened. So do we see the difference between the theology and then we have the history that comes in and verifies things? So the first slide, the historicity brings clarity and authenticity to the prophecy and theology. I know that's wordy, but it's profound. The historicity brings clarity and authenticity to the prophecy and theology. I challenge you to say that five times really fast. I don't think you'll do it. Better not. It might come out a swear or something. So my goal is not to change the story. And anyone who ever gets on a pulpit to preach, it's not about changing it in into something different, but it's to elucidate it or to explain it more clearly. So at the end of the day, is it really important where he was born? Really? Is it? Not really. Not compared to as long as we know the fact that he was born, that he did die, and he rose again. Really, at the end of the day, that's what's important. But what I'm going to share today is going to give such a richer meaning to what we already know. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year where we celebrate your birth and your coming and the glad tidings and the good news that we're going to learn today. And I just ask, I thank you for your wisdom for your illumination, your revelation, and that your fire would be on my tongue to bring your word in a transformative, revelatory way to everyone that is listening today. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Okay, Luke 2. We're going to read this. It's a few verses, but we're going to read it. And then we're going to start explaining some things. Luke 2, 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We're going to explain that. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, 
I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day, and we're going to get into that, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Another thing we're going to get into. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, or that word host is actually armies. So it was the angel armies that came and manifested and began to praise God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, shalom, and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is to come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they came with haste, And found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And we'll get into that as well. And when they had seen it, they had made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen It was as it was told unto them. Isn't that a beautiful story? I never get tired of hearing that. It's so powerful. But let's let's behold this. Let's open this up. Let's see what is being said here instead of just glancing through it. Verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I'm sorry to turn the tables on maybe your tradition. Jesus was not born in a stable. It's unfortunate that we have this scene of him in this outside manger with goats and donkeys and all these animals around them. I'm here to say that I'm sorry that did not happen. And this is really going to burst your bubble. The drummer boy was not there. I can't find it. Any- Listen, I've looked at Dead Sea Scrolls. I've looked at the Targums, the Mishnah. I've looked at it all. The drummer boy is just not there. I'm sorry. That's devastating. I know. But they did not go to an inn, and there was no innkeeper. And yet, that's the story we've been told through TV, through stories, and even preaching. But you won't find it there. So the word in, in this verse, is an entirely different word in the Greek for the word in, which is pandahion. Or in the Middle Middle East, they would call them khans, K-H-A-N. A A khan is basically like, in a term that we can understand, it's like a hotel. So that when you're traveling, you can come and stop there. You can rest, you can sleep, you bring your own food for yourself and your animals, and you stay there for a few days, and there's like no charge for it. You're just there to to rest and rejuvenate as you go on your journey. So this word in, in Luke 2.7, is the Greek word katalama. The word is for guest chamber or guest room. It's only used two other times in scripture, and it's used... For the guest room that Jesus and the disciples went to that upper room, that guest room, to eat the Passover dinner. 
So the word isn't in its guest chamber or guest room. So now we have Joseph and Mary coming to Bethlehem. Do you think (laughs) Joseph was born there and he had the pedigree and the lineage of King David. He would not have to go to an inn to try to find a room. He would be going to to family first. He'd be going to his relatives seeking a guest room so that him and his wife could stay and have the child. So, I mean, it's apparent that they obviously got there late and unannounced because there was no room. It didn't matter where they went, whose door they knocked on. And even if it wasn't family, because of his pedigree and lineage, they would have easily taken him in. But it was full. The whole city was full. So Bethlehem at that time was three to 5,000 people. Now, when this census came in and you had to go back to your hometown, the town easily could have swole to at least double, if not more. So you can see if they came late and unannounced, every guest room in that city was going to be packed full. Does that make logical sense? So if not a stable, then where? Because he was laid in a manger. We see that. And a manger is a stone feeding trough for animals. So I get that. That's where the assumption possibly came in. Well, if it's a manger and that's what animals feed out of, it had to be a stable. That's just conjecture. It was a manger, but we're going to explain it. So here we have Christ, the bread of life, put in a manger to feed the world. So remember when the Magi came to see Jesus, which was about one and a half to two years after his birth. Did you know that? They came to the house they were in at that time. So this is a later date. So Matthew 2, 1 to 4. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So they were not only fully educated in the stars and the constellations and the sun and moon and how they interact to each other. They had knowledge of scripture as well, verifying that astral prophecy. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So they knew where he was going to be born. And they said, the Magi in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now they're, they're quoting scripture to verify their journey to the place to see Christ the king who was prophesied. And it goes on in verse 6, which is quoting Micah 5, 2, and we'll, we'll quote that as well. Verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. 
And this is what it says in Micah 5, 2, which he's quoting right here. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. So this morning, this is more of a teaching. I hope you just track with me. This is not so much a preaching. It's, it's more of a teaching. But this is going to lay some phenomenal foundation in your heart. Amen? Okay. You with me? Good. I don't want you to be against me. <laughs> so Micah 5.2 foretold that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem just as it's stated in Luke 2, 1 to 7. We can see how that came about. But if we look back at Micah 4, 8, we'll see an even more specific prophecy about where the Messiah would be born. Now we're getting a little deeper into this. Micah 4, 8 says this. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come kingship from the daughter for Jerusalem, of Jerusalem. This is a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come to this tower of the flock, which in Hebrew me reads Migdal Idar. So if the Messiah, the king, is coming to the tower of the flock, I think it's probably important that we understand that. In the history of prophecy of Christ's coming, we should understand this. We're going to read Genesis 35, 19 to 21. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And actually, Rachel means lamb. Hold that in your mind as we get through this and Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day and Israel journeyed and spread his tent or Jacob spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar so here we have Rachel died and is buried in Bethlehem then her bereaved husband Jacob or his name then now was Israel pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar or Migdal Idar, the tower of the flock. So an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures says this about that verse. It's called the Targum of Jonathan. It's Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It says this, and Jacob proceeded and spread his tent beyond the tower of Idar, the place from whence It is to be the King Messiah will be revealed at the end of days. So the Aramaic translation is saying that the Messiah will be revealed in the tower of the flock. I'm going to quote Alfred Eidersheim. If you've never heard of Alfred Eidersheim, I don't expect you have. But he was a Jew that converted to Christianity and was a scholar in the 1800s. And he wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. So he explains the importance of the tower of the flock and the shepherds that were there. And I'm going to read it. 
that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. We can see that. The Magi knew that. The Magi. And they weren't even believers. They were witchcraft. They were astrology. So there's a difference between astrology and astronomy. Huge difference. God warns us about not dabbling or dealing with astrology, but astronomy is totally different. That the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from Migdal Idar, the tower of the flock. This Migdal Idar was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks, which pastured, pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem. So even in the um, Mishnah writings, the Mishnah writings are documents of written oral tradition. So the, the Jews had oral tradition that they passed on for centuries. And then in 200 BC, they finally said, you know what? We need to put these oral traditions of our, of our life, we need to write them down so that they're not lost. So that's what, what that is. Um, so what it talks about in the Mishnah is that all the surrounding area around Bethlehem were the sheep that were for temple sacrifice. And any of the other sheep were outside of that on, on totally different lands altogether. So these barren sheep ground were the other sheep in Bethlehem. Let's continue with the quote. But lay close to the town. The other sheep lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishnah leads to the conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. And accordingly, the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. Thus, Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that Migdal Idar where shepherds watched the temple flocks all year round. Of the deep symbolic significance of such a coincidence, it is needless to speak. What is he saying? Around Bethlehem, which was still considered Bethlehem, all the pastures and the fields where these shepherds were, who were rabbinical shepherds that were watching the sheep, and those sheep were specifically and only for temple sacrifice. Eidersheim continues on to say, the rabbinical teaching on the Hebrew scriptures shares that the flocks of the Tower of Edar were destined for temple sacrifice. The shepherds who kept the flock were special shepherds, rabbinically educated and trained to attend to the birth, inspect, and approve unblemished lambs for the destiny as a ceremonially clean temple sacrifice. A lot of reading, I know, but it's, are you getting something from, from all this? The shepherds would bring ewes, lambs. Remember, Rachel's name means lamb as well. They would bring the lambs ready to give birth into the base of the tower. A ceremonially clean environment and would catch, clean, inspect, and wrap each lamb in swaddling clothes and lay it in the manger that was there 
until the baby lamb was strong enough to stand and not fall and mar itself. This is Jewish tradition. This isn't a westernized gospel that we've tried to interpolate, interpolate, <laughs> interpretate our own. We, we're trying to wrap our western mind around Jewish things. It doesn't work. We have to go back to the Jewish culture and mind to grasp the fullness of the verity of what's going on. So Luke 2.8 tells us the shepherds were in the same region or nearby. They were in the field surrounding the tower of the flock. In verse 12, the angel says to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What's the sign to these rabbinical shepherds that whoever they're going to find is the Messiah is the one wrapped in priestly cloth, swaddled and laying in the major in the tower of the flock. So Jesus was not only found and this is why they ran with haste. As soon as the angels said that they knew, I knew we know exactly where he is because they knew the scripture. That's why they ran in haste and found him in the tower, in the manger, wrapped with the swaddling cloths of the priests. So where, where would have Mary gotten these cloths, these priestly cloths that would identify him as the Messiah? Could there have been some there? Possibly, but let me conjecture this. When Elizabeth and Zacharias, Elizabeth was pregnant, six months pregnant, and Mary went to go visit her. Zacharias was a high priest. My conjecture was, is that a gift to the Messiah, I'm sure she received many things. But I think some of the things that were given to her from, from Elizabeth and Zachariah were those swaddling cloths of the priests. The providence of God. Has that ever happened to you where you've received something? You don't even know what it's for, but you don't find out till later. Now, this is a pale comparison. And I, I almost don't want to use it because I'm trying to compare Christ to this. But one day I left a ladder outside my door. And I just forgot to bring it in. Guess what? The next morning I get up, it's gone. So I drive to my, my friend's place who we're, we're painting together. He's my partner when we do bigger projects. And I, I walk up, and I'm kind of scratching my head. He goes, what's, what's wrong? And I said, I left my ladder out, and someone stole it. He goes, what? I said, yeah. He goes, you know what? Somebody gave me a ladder three months ago, and it's been sitting in my garage, and I knew it was for something. I just didn't know what. Here it is. Do you, do you see the providence of God? It's a pale comparison but the providence of God, how things like that work, she received these things not fully knowing why or when. Well, she would know when. She's going to wrap her child in it, but not understanding fully the extent of what's going on. Okay, now I want to touch briefly on the day he was born. Do we know that he was not actually born on December 25th? Does somebody think he still was? It's not a shame thing. It's like, I, I thought that like years ago. 
But we know he was not born on December 25th. Nothing wrong with celebrating it. Like, I've heard all of, you know, it's a pagan holiday, and, you know, uh, Constantine or Pope Julius were the ones that changed it to try to um, eradicate the pagan holiday and, and all that sort of stuff. Like, here's the thing. Who created the seven days of the week and the months and the years? The Lord did. Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the firmament, that's the sun, moon, and stars, of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. Every day, every week, every month, every year belongs to the Lord. And if there's something going on either than that, it's because Satan has hijacked what God has already created for himself. We celebrate Christ every day. And there may be satanic holidays on those days. I don't care. I'm worshiping the Lord. He made those days for us. Regardless of what that day is. So early civilizations had a profound understanding of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and of the, the astral movement of what happened. So our megalithic structures today, do you know the pyramids? Um, all these huge, they were built in concordance with the stars. They had a, a massively deep understanding of this, that we, we had got a phone, and we used GPS. Sailors on the ocean had to use the stars to know where to go. So this isn't like witchcrafty stuff. This is astronomy. And they had a deep, firm understanding of what this is. So the date, I'm not, it would take me an hour or more to go into the full detail. It's like a little dizzying, actually, but profound. The idea of when the day he was born. So I'm going to sum it up in a nutshell. And later, if you want the sources that I got this information, just come to me. I'm, and you know what? Anytime you, you have a question about what I'm teaching, you can come to me. I'll give you every source that I've ever studied for whatever subject you are asking for, okay? Because the reality is you can't go into full detail all the time. It's impossible. Okay. So according to historical records... When the census was given, this is, can all be traced back historically. So when the census was given, the time frame of Zechariah serving in the temple, the birth of John the Baptist, and there's verse in Revelation 12 describing Jesus' birth, which has in it astral prophecy, which means it reveals In that verse, the particular alignment of the constellations at Christ's birth. I I know this is wild. But honestly, like we need to get we need to get back into the culture, into the history of what this was written for. Because, you know, there was someone who said that um, the Bible wasn't written to us, but for us. Makes sense. It was written to the Jewish people, but it's still for us. So here it is in a nutshell, okay? Scholars believe the day Christ was born, it was on a new moon, 
Wednesday, Tishri 1, which is September 11th, 3 B.C. Isn't that amazing how the enemy tries to pervert that day? 2001, 911. We have to shake up the cobwebs of tradition to grasp what the Lord is wanting us to behold. So what is the prophetic and really the more Jewish understanding of this day? This day of Tishri 1 or September 11th is Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Christ was born on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and it was also the Feast of Trumpets. So six months leading up to Rosh Hashanah, at the first of every month, they'd blow a trumpet. And then Rosh Hashanah was the last trumpet to sound. And it was also, you can look in scripture, you can, you can see where uh, King Solomon, King Jehu, King Johash, they were inaugurated on that day to announce the beginning of their kingly, kingly rule. So Jewish elders held that the first of Tishri was the first day of creation. Isn't that beautiful? Like this is man alive. So Jewish historian Theodore H. Gaster states this. Judaism regards the New Year's Day not merely as an anniversary of creation, but more importantly as a renewal of it. This is when the world is reborn. Are you beholding, hearing, seeing, and understanding this morning? So let's sum it up this far. Jesus was born in the tower of the flock. The tower where rabbinical shepherds birthed lambs, inspected them for blemish, wrapped or swaddled them in priest's clothes, and placed them in a manger to keep them unharmed. And the day was September 11th, 3 BC, on Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year, inaugurating the beginning of Christ the King's rule. The day of trumpets where the last trumpet was sounded and announcing the end of all sacrifice to usher in the new birth. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? I just can't. I, I, I was just, even this morning as I'm going over my notes, I just like, I just felt so honored that he would share that with me. And that I get to share that with you. It's just. So I was going to get into the angelic um, proclamation because that's really where I was trying to get to. Maybe uh, I'll take two minutes. Um, can we get that one last slide up of all the words? Let's just take two minutes. Let's behold this. Let's look into this. Let's see it. Instead of just reading these words, oh, he came. Oh, glad tidings and peace. And 
joy, and all that sort of stuff. Glad tidings is the exact same word for our gospel. When they said, we come bringing glad tidings, it's the word you, galizo. And remember, the word you means to prosper or to be well off. That word you right there is the absolute antithesis or the absolute opposite, as scholars will tell you, of the word kakos and poneros, which is the word for evil, the words for evil. The absolute opposite. Our gospel is the absolute opposite of evil. And then it goes on to say, um, so the word yugalizo, to prosper, to be, to be well off, it's connected to the word angelos, which means messenger or tidings. The message was great, which means to be abundant in every way. The message of the gospel is to be abundant in every way. And it's joy, with great joy. This word means, like, I, I can't make this up. Like, if you were to take a picture of this and just look at it when you get home, look at all those words. Is there anything in there about destruction, sin, sickness, calamity? This is the gospel. This is the proclamation to you, church. It's just not to the unsaved. This is for us. And then for us to take this message and not only preach it, but to show it. You are called and anointed to bring the proclamation of the gospel to the world out there. Not to hear it, but to lay hands on people and for them to experience it. Joy, gladness, to be well, thrive, to prosper, to be successful. He's our savior, our deliverer. It's from the word sozo, which means to keep safe and sound, to make well, heal, restore to health. And Christ means anointed. Acts 10.38, how Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good and healing, anointed of the Holy Spirit and doing good to all that are oppressed of the devil, healing all that are oppressed of the devil. The word oppressed means to exert dominion against. Satan is trying to exert dominion against us by doing the opposite of all of these to humanity. Peace, joy, happiness, safety, prosperity, shalom, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek peace, health, prosperity, welfare, nothing broken, nothing missing. And the goodwill Kindness and benignity. Benignity means to not threaten life or health. Church, this is the proclamation of the angels to mankind. This, in a nutshell, is the antithesis and the absolute opposite of evil. And he wants you and I to go into the world with this proclamation on our lips. just take a second and just pray Father your word says that your word will never return void if there is ever a day we need to see the manifestation of your promise in your word it is today we're not standing here we're not, we're not begging you to do something that you've already accomplished and have done you've accomplished this 
and I declare the proclamation of the gospel over all these people here and the people listening. We just command the spirit of Christ and his word and his gospel and the manifestation of the gospel to take place in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us on the Life Church audio podcast. If this message spoke to you, go ahead and share it with your friends and family. And let's get the word of God into the lives of more people out there. For more information about us, go to thisislifechurch.com. And remember that we can make a difference by loving people.